This morning we conclude our study of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. And if you're joining us this morning or you're new to Redeemer, all of the teaching is available on our website. So you can uh, feel free to uh, visit that and get the context of the entire letter, both letters, uh, if that would be encouraging to you. Uh, As Paul concludes his letter, our scripture for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you're doing and will continue to do the things that we command. May the Lord direct our hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and destructive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we have, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. When he closes his letter, he starts with a prayer... And then there's this really strong instruction with incredibly strong language, and then he ends with a blessing. And the prayer that he asks for in the beginning, in verse 1, his prayer is that the word of God would spread rapidly and that the word of God would be honored. And it's like the Apostle Paul is channeling Isaiah in Isaiah 55, which reads, The Lord has promised that his word would perform its work. It will not return unto me void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. It will prosper in the reason that it was sent out. And it's like Paul is praying that kind of prayer. So I'm going to just take this opportunity right now, because I can't miss it, to ask you to pray for me. Uh, Pray that when I'm preaching, that the word of God goes out, that it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. Whether it's on Sunday morning here, doing the work of renewal in hearts, uh, drawing us to uh, repentance and care, convicting us. Whether I'm uh, in your homes, I'm in many of your homes all the time, regularly sitting on your couches and praying with you and walking you through various uh, things just pastorally. Pray that when I bring the word to you at your kitchen table, that it does the work it's supposed to do. Pray for me, please, when I go to the university and I uh, sit on the hot seat 
and they opened up Slido and they just start asking any manner of questions and they invite their friends to ask any manner of questions so that I can defend the Christian faith. Please, please pray for me. Pray for Peter, pray for Rick as we, the three of us do this work of caring uh, for the church. Um, I couldn't pass up that opportunity, so please do. Let's get into the sermon now. Let's get into unpacking this passage. Uh, we're going to look at the flow here. The first thing is there's a problem of idleness. Secondly, there is a divine perspective on vocation. And then lastly, there's power. The power of God stabilizing peace. Let's begin with this problem of idleness. He's pretty hot under the collar about it. He's speaking pretty strongly. This is because idleness is being fixated on the self. It's a characteristic of character that's mutually incompatible with the character of Christ, with the self-emptying nature of Christ. It's incompatible with being a community uh, that cares for each other and loves and cares if, if we are curved in, if we're idle. And uh, he says like three times, command, 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 verse 6, verse verse 12 just live follow the commands and there's such strong language around command and against this idleness and what's going on it's because freedom and flourishing is not living a life devoid of restriction freedom and flourishing comes with the right restriction God's wise and loving restriction the wise guidance of his word that's why the apostle keeps on saying remember our tradition remember our example remember the things we taught you He's calling them into, he's commanding, without apology, a particular way of living because he knows that's the pathway to flourishing. So a couple weeks ago, I was at Toronto Motorsport. I told you on my holidays I was going to go take my car to the track. So I'm at the track and I meet a young guy named Hamza. And Hamza had never been on a racetrack before and he pulls into the pit next to me and we were pals all day long going out and doing racing, coming back and talking. And he'd never been on the track before. He was so excited. And I said, so did you do any prep for today? What sort of prep work did you do for today? And he says, oh, I didn't do any, I didn't do any prep work at all. I'm just really excited to get out on this track and race my car. Do you have any tips for me? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the laws of physics? Uh, like there's a, this is not like just driving on the street. And so I started giving him what he asked. He asked for tips, but everything I ended up saying ended up being restrictions. Restrictions about braking, restrictions about your turn-in point, restrictions about how many laps you should go out before you come in with your like all sorts of restrictions. I mean, everything down to the point where Hamza comes in and pulls in next to me, and his car's ticking, tuka, 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 and his, I'm like, I think feel like your engine needs some oil. He pulls in next to me. Oh man, that was amazing! And he goes, and I said, Did you just put on your emergency brake? Yeah, take it off, Hamza. Your your emergency brakes are going to fuse to your rotors because your brakes are so hot. You never put your... Everything I said was restriction. And you can interpret it that one, one of two ways. I'm there to kill his vibe. I'm there to constrict his life and his experience and everything he's up to. Or, actually, if you, if you actually operate according to these restrictions I'm giving you, you're going to have a lot more enjoyment today. And so the apostle launches into this letter with what seems like a lot of commands, but they're not coming out of nowhere. You know, living our life according to God's wise guidance, the wise uh, guidance of his word. This only makes sense, of course, if there's an ultimate authority, because otherwise all we're left with is social convention. 
that we shouldn't live our life under command, that God's word is something we can take or leave to the degree in which it already fits our you know, current ideology based on our geolocation and historical point in history. But if there is a God, then it does make sense that we would live according to his wise guidance. And that's why the Apostle Paul is using a word like, we command this, we command this, we command this. This idleness in the church, this is a major problem. This is antithetical to the very nature and image of Jesus, which I'm going to unpack a little bit, a little bit later. Um, one of the greatest works of literature of all time was written by a gentleman named Bill Watterson. And it's the Calvin and Hobbes volumes. If you've not read those, that's mandatory reading. It's a pastoral command, if you will. It's uh, just rich with humor and romance and political satire. It's just all woven together. It's just an excellent, just excellent work of literature. And one of the things that uh, is famously known uh, in the life of Calvin, the main character in the series, is he likes to play Calvin Ball. And Calvin Ball is a game that just keeps on changing and morphing as he goes along. And the more that things don't work out his way, the rules of Calvin Ball just keep changing. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter because the the Thessalonians are at great risk of living in Calvin Ball. He says in verse 5, he wants their hearts to be brought into the love of God and into the Christ's perseverance. This buoyant sense of joy, this sense of uh, the persevering nature of Christ. He wants their lips and their lives to be congruent. And this idleness is introducing an incongruence. And so by them being brought into the love of God, being brought into Christ's perfect, uh, perseverance, this is enabling them to put off their old nature, put on this new humanity. I'll borrow from a theologian, uh, Thomas Chalmers, who said that our affections have expulsive power. He talked about the gospel being the expulsive power of a new affection. And this is true of all of our lives, that when a new affection comes in, it, expo- it expels old affections. Many of us have experienced that in, in all kinds of ways, where this thing that you used to be all about 10 years ago, it just has no place in your life now because you've found greater interests, you've thrown your energies into new things, and that new affection has an, an expulsive effect. The Apostle Paul is calling them into the love of Christ, the perseverance of Christ, the love of God, because he wants it to have an an expulsive effect because of this problem that's manifested in this idleness in the church. It's a major problem for him. The being idle and disruptive is this toxic combination in the church. Because, of course, when you get together as a community of believers like we do here and every other community through the history of the church, the church is not, as I said a couple of weeks ago, like certified It's an as-is project. It requires building. It's not something that's built from the podium, you know, down. It's something that's done amongst the members as we care and love and serve, walk alongside each other, sharpen one another like iron sharpening iron. There's a discipleship that happens. And as we, uh, you know, grow uh, together and care for one another, and all of this requires a lot of energy. So these idle busybodies are a major problem for Paul because it's going to create a culture in a very young church that's going to be completely unlike Jesus. And um, so he calls them disruptive, which is this vain curiosity. It leads to all sorts of things like just meddling in people's affairs, you know, being a, you know, being a gossiper, um, saying whatever comes into your head and calling that your spiritual gift, right? It can, it can, disruption can manifest in a lot of ways, but it's, it's coming from this idleness, which if you think about it, 
is a little bit, little bit like being a little child, an immature child, who says, I'm bored. Children are easily bored, right? I'm bored. And the thing about immaturity and boredom is that you relate to your boredom like it's everybody else's responsibility to make your life exciting and meaningful and all of these. And you have to help your child mature out of that. Right? Part of our work as parents, well, the main central focus of our work as parents is the formation of getting our children to get outside themselves. And children who are, you know, bored, it's a function of them being idle. And so parents will always say things like, well, go do this. Or this. They're, you're, you're, you know, the, the remedy for, for boredom, the remedy is activity, is use your gifts, get outside yourself, don't sit there in your own head. This idleness that leads to this boredom. And so... Uh, Christian toddlers are easily bored. But ministers are never bored. And when I say minister, I don't mean me. I mean us. We're all ministers. There's, there, we're all called to the same work. My work is to train all the other ministers to do my work. We're all called to do the same work. There's nothing special about pastors. Pastors are called, but that doesn't make them special. We're just called to do what we're all called to do and to train. And so there's this boredom that can come up, comes into this church where, for a myriad of reasons, they feel like God's abandoned them. Now they're idle. Some of them think that Christ has returned and they're under the crushing you know, regime of Rome. And so now there's a futility about their life and their work and they don't want to work. Right? The key phrase is they're unwilling. It's not that they can't. It's not that they're unemployed. It's not that the economy's terrible and they can't find work. And Paul's chastising the unemployed. That's not what this is. This is people who are willing and they won't. They're leeches. You can see this is like just sitting there and just taking advantage of the generosity of the people sitting around you in your church community is just antithetical to the outward-facing, self-emptying ways of Jesus. It's just not gospel-driven. That's why the apostle's losing his mind. He's like, God, if you're bored, grab a wrench, build something, take someone for coffee, go make disciples, like get into one of those others' lives and care and serve in small, beautiful, organic ways. Corporately speaking as a church, like, let's go. And if you've been in church in any length of time, you've, you've probably maybe felt this yourself. Oh, I'm so bored. Why doesn't this church come up with something new? Every Sunday, I've been at Redeemer for eight years. It's the same thing. Paul takes me through the text and he preaches the grace of Christ and he talks about obedience to Christ. And again, the next week he says, I'm so bored. You're bored because you're idle. So it's like, let's go. Let's build together. Let's care and serve and love. And I'm not trying to exhaust you. Oh my goodness, he's putting all this work on my plate. I'm saying, when you are building in the, uh, the body of Christ and being a part of that, there is something in that uh, that is congruent with the, the way in which you were wired to flourish. The ways of God, that outward-facing sense of care and love. And so the Apostle Paul goes on to say that we have confidence that you're going to do the things that we're commanding. And so he's expecting that there's going to be this, uh, this, this transformation as the Thessalonians realign to the way, what they're called to do, to care and serve each other. In verses 12 and 13, you get that strong language where he says, withdraw from the person who's uh, idle. And it seems like, wow, this doesn't seem very loving. Uh, But in the Greek, the idleness, the the tense is a present tense. It's a way of saying like, this is like habitually a part of their life. This is like, 
there are people in that church in Thessalonica that have determined somehow the outworking of my faith looks like this. And Paul's like, this is going to be a cancer in the church. Absolutely not. So that's why he speaks with such strong language. And they have a process for this, of course. Remember that he's saying, the things we taught you, and the things, of course, they taught, Jesus taught. And in Matthew 18, one of the strong teachings of Jesus is how to deal with uh, problems in the, in, in, with, amongst the believers in Matthew 18. If you have a problem, go to that person one-on-one. If that doesn't go well and they don't listen to you and hear you, then take somebody else with you and try again. If that doesn't go well and they're still like, no, everything I'm up to is fine and scriptural and God is okay with it, then get the church involved, which is step three, by the way, not, not step one. Step three. And then if it still doesn't go well, then, then it's like put them out of the community. And we're like, oh, man, excommunication, that's not loving. Here's the, here's the difference between the way we think about it and what Jesus' intention is. It's not punitive. It's not merely, that's it, you're out of here. It's intended to be restorative. And the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing here. Don't associate with them. And the reason Paul's saying that is because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very jarring. And they're going to be like, wait a minute. Why is, this, why is my church community relating to me like something's wrong with the way I'm living? Everything's fine about the way that I'm living. And what Paul is in, intending here is that they're going to be like, no. The people that you care about and love and respect, your friends, those that are mentoring you and teaching you, they're all in unison saying... This is actually not Christian faith. Being self-absorbed and idle and just being a, a, a leech on the community, that's not actually the ways of Jesus. And it's supposed to be very jarring for that individual. They're supposed to be, have a, an awakening and be like, actually, I, I want to be a part of my church community. I miss my church community. I want to be a part of this church community. So it's, it's intended to be restorative, not just punitive. The modern church, the mobile church, if you're offended by anything I say this morning... Um, it's very easy for you to just go 500 meters and find another church that will tell you, yeah, no, that's good. Or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm being hyperbolic. But the point is, we're very mobile. Ah, I didn't like that sermon series. I'm moving on. Or, ah, the pastor came to my house and sat on my couch and said, this thing isn't on. Ugh, I'm leaving. It's very easy in a mobile culture. Ancient first century church. You're just, just a part of that community. And you're not just going to pop out and go to another one and go, well, maybe these, these guys will be fine with my idleness. The Apostle's trying to set something in stone here, which leads us to the next thing, which is the divine perspective on vocation. It's it, vocation and working. It's not merely about garnering status in the city or getting a name for yourself in the community. It's not even necessarily about curating meaning, even though having a flourishing, fulfilling career is very meaningful. It's not ultimately about that. It's not about assuring future security by amassing wealth. Even though, of course, if you're faithful, you know, this help is helpful for us and for our children and children's children. If you happen to be married, if you're a single person, uh, you're assuring the security of yourself and able to be generous with your finances. It's not ultimately about any of these things. God's perspective on vocation is, and we see it in the letter here, this is the vehicle to bring your God-given gifts to serve a community and to serve its flourishing. And you do that here in this room with one another. And you do that in your workplaces, and you do that on campus, like, you're just bringing who you are to what you're doing. Some of you might be like, yeah, but the divine, you know, you can unpack this divine theology of vocation, but the problem is I hate my job, or I don't enjoy my job, or I'm just kind of doing it because it pays the bills. Listen, that may be true, but you are bringing you to that work. It might not be the most fulfilling work. I'm not up here preaching a North American sort of 
silver lining theology on vocation to say, find out what you love and then find a way to get paid for it, the word of the Lord. No, that's not, like we invented that. You know that, guys? Like we made that up. But the scriptures is just like, get to work. But the theology behind it is we're bringing, we're bringing who, who Christ's nature, we're bringing our new humanity to our work. And that manifests in humanizing work and loving and caring for people and relating in, in, in meetings and in every way in which we you know, are doing that work to the glory of God. And so that's why these, these people who can work but have decided not to work and have just sat back and, and leeching off the community, the apostles are like, wow, this can't get farther from the life that we see in Jesus. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't even know why you took the time to preach this sermon because this is Kitchener-Waterloo. This is Quantum Valley. We worship the busy badge. We, we, we just bow down at the altar of the grind. And there's universities here. and We'll kill ourselves for degrees and we'll kill ourselves for, for all manner of status. And it's Startup Central in Canada. This is ground zero for startups in Canada. So why are you talking about the importance of work? The reason is because all of those things, flexing on the busy badge, flexing on the hours, trying to curate and garner a sense of identity, and then needing our workplaces to be mirrors that reflect back to us this version of ourselves that we see of ourselves. The reason why I'm saying it is the Apostle Paul is wanting to get right down to the nature of Christ and who he was and to bring that to our work. You see... Um, why do we need his example? Why did he hammer that and be like, we gave you an example. When we were there, we were working night and day. And you're like, oh man, it seems like Paul's flexing on his hours. No, no, no. What's he talking about? Read the text again. He says, we had the right to be supported by the ministry of the gospel. We had the right. We're giving our lives and our work for the building of the church and the ministry of the gospel. So we had the right to be supported that way. But there's something that they, that there's something the apostles ascertained in that community that was off that made them say, we're going to set an example here that we're not going to take from the community. We're going to set an example of giving to the community. And so he gives. Think about the, the fact that Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, God incarnate, God incarnates and wraps himself in the dirt of his own creation and becomes human. And he spends 30 years by the very design of God working. Just He's a carpenter. Just part of the community, bringing his gifts, working. What is that? What is he doing? Is he just biding his time? Is he just hanging out? What's going on here? It's not that, oh, oh, just wait till year 30 hits, then the real ministry begins. Now, that is true, no doubt, in terms of his gospel ministry. But what was Jesus doing for 30 years? He was fulfilling the cultural mandate of Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Christ being single and totally fulfilled... Was, uh, did not multiply in terms of he wasn't married, didn't have children, and you don't need to be in order to be a fully uh, fulfilled human being. So Jesus didn't, didn't do that, but he fulfilled the cultural mandate of, of uh, being fruitful, of bringing that gift, bringing his vocation, serving the community, bringing the nature and the ways, the love, the wisdom of God to everything that he was doing. It's very important to consider that that 30 years of work that Jesus did, was that's important stuff that teaches us things. About him just glorifying the Father with his God-given gifts. The way in which you and I can do that. Again, you might not be in a career where you're like, you know, I'm firing on all cylinders in this particular job. And it's level 10 out of 10 in enjoyment. Those things may not be true. But the way in which you bring 
who, who you are to that work is glorious. Do you think when Jesus was, was uh, operating as a carpenter, that was his quote-unquote full potential? Nah, I kind of feel like raising the dead was his full potential. But, but uh, you know, like there's a big gap between like mama needs a table and raising Lazarus from the dead, right? On a scale of using your full potential, right? These are North American ideas. I'm just trying to take a sniper rifle to them. That Jesus was doing this glorious work, the glory of his father, the blessing of the community. And so there's a beauty in the vocation in, in which that we do. And that is why the apostle Paul says, think about how he's coming against those who are idle. He says, in the name of Jesus. Wow. Let that sink in. That's like the phrase that they used when they were casting out demons. That, like, in the name of Jesus. You can't use stronger language than that. In the name of Jesus, I command you not to be idle. Whoa. But what is the name of Jesus? The nature. His name is his nature. Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Seven times through the book of John, Jesus says, I am. So what is it that we're saying when we pray in the name of Jesus, when we live to the glory of Jesus, when the Apostle Paul says, don't, in the name of Jesus, don't be idle. In the nature of the one in whom you were created, live in congruence with this. Depart, put off the sinful ways, put off all the stuff. You know, M- Michelangelo was famously credited with this phrase uh, when he was asked how he carved the David. It's a legend. He didn't say it word for word. But the legend just says that he says, well, I just looked at this huge block of marble and I chipped away everything that wasn't David. And that's a picture of Christian sanctification. And it's just chips, the lifelong process of chipping away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. In the name of Jesus... The Apostle says this incredible expression. And so when you and I go to work on, on, on Monday, why are we going? Verse 13, never tire of what is good. And the Apostle's not trying to exhaust the church. And I'm not trying to exhaust this church. The Apostle's trying to liberate that church. And I'm praying that as I uh, unpack this, that it liberates this church. That to be curved in on yourself, to be idle... This is the pathway to chronic unrest. To be constantly fixated on you. This is the path to the soul that's on rest. We weren't made for that. We were made for so much more. To curve up and out. That's the pathway to freedom. To care deeply about the people sitting in the chairs next to you. Three or four of them. You know, not 200. Relax. Three or four. But to care. And to love and to serve. That's the pathway to freedom. Fixation on the self is definitely exhaustion. And the reason for the, the, the strong language in the name of Jesus is because this young church is like concrete that's setting. And when concrete is setting, man, you need that post to be straight. And the Apostle Paul is watching the concrete setting in Thessalonica. That thing is not close to the character and the nature of Jesus. And he's like, in the name of these, have you ever tried to, concrete a setting and you've set a fence post and you re- go over with the level and you're like, oh no, we're not there. And there's a lot of work being done and there's a lot of sweat equity being put in to be like, we've got to get this thing straight because the clock is ticking. That's the, that's the heart of the apostle. 
That's why he's using all this strange, this, this strong language. That's why he's saying things like, don't have communion with them. As moderns, we're like, I don't really know that that was necessary, Paul. Oh, it was necessary. The concrete was setting, and the culture was being set, and the apostles like, absolutely not. We've got to get to the character and the nature of Jesus. Which leads to the final thing. After this perspective on this divine work, it's the, the power of God's stabilizing grace. He ends by saying, now may God himself give you peace. He wants, him to, uh, he wants the church to be stabilized by this peace. We end each sermon with a benediction of peace. Paul is like channeling the, number, the, the priestly prayer from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Turn his face towards you. His countenance shine upon you. Give you peace. What is that? If you Google peace and you Google human soul and click on images, first of all, you're going to look a terrible Disney movie. But, anyway, but also, you'll get, if you click on soul, and if you say soul and click on images, you'll get, um, you'll get a, an image of like chill vibes and uh, a lot of that. But when the Bible talks about the soul, it's always chaotic. It's like waves being tossed on a violent sea. This state of being perpetually un, at unrest, searching for rest. And so Paul concludes the letter with wanting this peace, this stabilizing rest. When Paul wrote to Ephesus, he talked about their feet being bound up in peace. Like a Roman soldier's cleat that just dug into the ground so that they were immovable. Peace is not chill vibes it's stabilizing grounding power that's what he wants for that church that's what i want manifest in this church it's this good news of the gospel that united to jesus christ by his grace by faith alone there's this stabilizing peace we're 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 given this uh confirmation that god has always wanted to be with his people to bring us to this place of stabilizing peace that's the image in genesis of the realm of god and the realm of nature converged It's the image that we see in the Old Testament of God condescending into the tabernacle surrounded by his 12 tribes, then condescending into the temple, and then condescending in Jesus Christ again, the greater temple. And then he surrounds himself by his 12 disciples. And then again, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in us, his temple, his mobile temples. And then in the end, in the book of Revelation, that reuniting of what we see in Genesis of the realm of God and the realm, this glorious realm of earth being converged. God is always desired in his holiness to not stay away from his people, but to move towards his people in undeserving, scandalous grace so that we would experience this rest. Because by having rest and peace with God, we are able to have this, this rest and peace of God. And so this peace of God it liberates us from soul-draining idleness. It liberates us from being fixated on ourselves. It empowers us to live into the new nature of Christ, to do soul-fulfilling work. And it's not because God needs any of it. Our neighbor does. We're saved by grace. That's done. Christ's perfect substitution does not need our contribution. Finished. It is finished. And now from that liberation, from that freedom, may we leave this place and care for one another. May we live into our new humanity as imitators of Christ. May we go into our neighborhoods and our campuses and our workplaces, living to the glory of the one who saved us in grace. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.